be damned if the same politicians who refuse to act then are going to try to come back today. The real content of any kind of revolutionary thrust lies in the, in, in the principles and the goals that you're striving for. When the powerful use their position to bully others, we all lose. A system of justice will be the richer for diversity of background and experience. And correction. Hello, everybody. It's me, Miss Cracker. I'm here with my co-pilot, Caitlin, and it's time for She's a Woman. It's a podcast for every human being who looks in the mirror and says, she's a woman, and for the people who love them. Every week, we talk to incredible women of all kinds from all walks of life and invite them to share their stories with you, our incredible listeners. And that's exactly what we're going to do today. Caitlin... I'm about to do a huge hour-long stand-up comedy special at the Tribeca Film Festival. You are. It's major. We're having a big, busy month yeah. this month. So it's going to be like an intimate crowd. It's going to be like 170 people. Mm-hmm. It's going to be filmed. And it's going to be a full hour of just stand-up, which is something I've never done in my life before. Yeah. And when I first heard about it, I was kind of like, there's no way that I'm going to be able to fill an hour of time with talking, right? Yeah, but look look at how many podcast episodes we have of you <laughs> yapping. You know what I mean? So you underestimate your ability to, to yap. I underestimated my ability to yap because yeah. now I am done with the with writing it. Yeah. Well, huh. by the time this episode comes out. Yeah, by the time it'll this... It'll be done. By the time this airs, we... Uh, yeah, she'll have, have done, been filmed it. Been done yep, filmed it. Yep. And hopefully... um. It will be available on like some sort of platform to watch. Yeah. Eventually we'll see what happens. We'll find out. So hopefully everyone, wherever you're located, could eventually watch it. That's, yep. that's the goal. That's, that's the, dream. the real goal. That's yeah. the real announcement. Yeah. Someday we hope it will find its way to somewhere big. Yeah. Um, and everyone will be able to see it. Anyway, I want to dive right into our serious groundbreaking interview, but first, I have a little treat for you, Caitlin. Okay, tell me. Every week, we do a little segment called Here's the Good News, where we share positive stories torn from the headlines. The idea is that they'll bring you, our listeners, a little hope during these difficult times, and this week, our news is all about growth. Okay, here's the good news. Harriet's Bookshop, the bookshop featured in our very first episode of this podcast, is ready to move on to a larger building and a permanent home. They're now trying to raise $300,000 for the purchase. But here's the even better news. They've already gotten halfway to their goal. Here's an excerpt from a letter about their fundraising project. It says... As you may or may not know, we rent the space for Harriet's Bookshop from a woman who decided to give us a chance when no one else would. However, our lease is up in July, and instead of renewing it for another two years, we'd prefer to own our own building for Harriet's Bookshop. As it stands, I am a modern-day sharecropper, bringing energy and investing money in a location that I cannot pass down to my children. But we can change that. The new permanent location would give us a mission-focused bookshop with an 1800s residential feel that includes multiple floors of private book nooks, indoor-outdoor green spaces, meeting rooms, and a state-of-the-art third-floor apartment, which will be used to house a visiting rotation of authors, artists, and activists. Well, 
I think it's amazing that the community has stepped up to give Harriet's Bookshop $150,000 and change this far. Now, listeners, it's our turn. Just go to harrietsbookshop.com. That's Harriet with two T's and two R's for more information. Let's make a difference. Isn't this an exciting thing for them, Caitlin? That's really exciting. It's so nice to think about how our that was our first guest like six months ago and uh, she and the bookshop are still thriving. Yeah. And um, there's the, like the setup she has in mind sounds so cool. It sounds like my dream bookshop. I just want all bookshops to just be kind of like huge communal spaces that you can spend all day in. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. With events and like, you know what I mean? That it's like so... Her plans for it sound like my dream, and I hope that they they accomplish that goal. So me and you can go to Philadelphia and visit. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> we have to. We have to. Anyway, that's enough about that. It's time to take a little break. Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. Okay, we're back. Now, before we continue, let me say this. If you enjoy your time with us today, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. We love reviews. In fact, we love them so much, we're going to read some of our favorite reviews at the end of the show. So write in, and you could be on this very podcast. You know, it's a, it's a good thing. Like, I know, yes. Please write, because I feel like having to pick out a review every single week, sometimes there's not a new one every week, so yeah. we really need you guys we to... We really need you guys to pitch in. Come yeah. on, you're our just, writers. Just a sentence, yeah. you know? It would make us so happy. happy. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so tell us you love us, but now it's time for the most important part of the episode, and that is the interview. Okay, Caitlin, today I did my work and I brought a guest. Yeah, you produced this and you and this is someone that you've known for a number of years. And yeah. I believe back in the day I, I met her once or twice at a show. Yeah. Like in just in a little New York bar. Yep. And she's a really incredible woman. She has had such an adventurous life and such a life of service where Mm -hmm. she has been helping people, you know, using her own experiences of the world to help other people get through difficult times. When I met her, she was using her skills to help people in disaster situations get the food that they needed to survive. And now she is a photographer that documents important political moments and crises around the world. So I'm really excited to catch up with her today. And I can't wait to dive in. All right, everybody. Diana Zainab Al-Hindawi uses photography to explore the human condition across various political and cultural contexts. Based out of Brooklyn, USA, Diana works internationally in areas experiencing conflict, social unrest, or humanitarian emergencies. Her photography has been published and showcased by media outlets like the New York Times newspaper and magazine, the Sunday Times magazine, the Wall Street Journal, Al Jazeera America, Le Monde, and many more. 
In 2014, she was named one of Lens Culture's top 50 emerging talents for 2014. In 2015, she received the ICRC Humanitarian Visa Door Award for her coverage of groundbreaking news in the Congo. In 2018, she was named one of PDN's 30 new emerging photographers to watch for. So hello, Diana. Where are you? What are you doing? And how are you doing? Hi, so I'm good. I am in my um, apartment in Brooklyn, New York. Happy to be talking to you about this. Yeah. How long are you in New York for? Uh, Well, I was supposed to be gone actually about a week ago, but my next job just got pushed back a bit and some new opportunities came up that, well, uh, actually something terrible happened in the Congo where I usually am. A volcano erupted. And I was suddenly presented with the opportunity to write about it. Um, And so rather than trying to rush over there and take pictures, um, which I I don't think I could have possibly gotten there fast enough, I decided to go with the opportunity to be able to write about it. And so so I'm here still writing, actually, because this just happened about 10 days ago. Now, okay, I want to ask about your... 2020 experience because as you're suggesting right now a lot of your work means picking up and getting on the road to respond to different situations like this that come up but how did covid and all the travel bans and everything affect your work like how are you able to adapt last year so everything changed for me as i think it did for a lot of people around the world in various contexts and circumstances, right? I am based in Brooklyn, New York, but I spend about 70% of the year abroad. And I have only focused on international issues until last year. So yeah, I was always predominantly working in East and Central Africa, but sometimes in Cuba, sometimes in Asia, a little bit in Eastern Europe, but I had never really had an assignment here in the US. So when COVID came around, everything stopped. You know, we weren't traveling anymore. The newspapers and uh, all my clients really were really hesitant about sending anybody abroad because they didn't, you know, they didn't want anything to happen to me. They didn't want COVID spreading perhaps by accident because I, yeah. so yeah, so that just all ended. And uh, so at the beginning it was, and being a photographer, of course, COVID is something I could have photographed myself. And so I had to make that decision, mm. but I decided to kind of stay put. And also, you know, you had all the, all the international correspondents that were, were international photographers that were suddenly just grounded here in the U S and, but you had photographers that were already working in the U S the entire time. So it's not like I wasn't about to take their jobs, you know? Right. Um, yeah. So, so basically I just stayed put. So, um, it was a pretty quiet, you know, beginning of the year until George Floyd was killed. And then you know, protests erupted around the country. Being in New York City, this was a central point for it. And so I felt like I had to, you know, I had to go outside and see what was going on. And so I started photographing during that. And my my main client for the last few years was the New York Times. So the, the national desk and the metro desk the, for New York City gave me some assignments to photograph the protests and the unrest that happened around the country after that. Um, including some of the far right extremist groups that started popping up um, right. because I had a, a background in photographing conflict and, and um, just insecure situations. And 
maybe a lot of the national photographers didn't have that. So, so the editors brought me in a little bit for that, but it was pretty sporadic here and there. And a lot of it, I just photographed on my own because, you know, once I got into it, I, I was interested in following everything. What was it like? I mean, I know that you, since you travel internationally, you are having to place yourself and empathize with different situations that are not part of your daily life. But was it different to be here in your home country, in your hometown, seeing these conflicts arise on your own soil? Did it have a different feeling? Do you have to change your mindset in order to document that? It did. And I was surprised because I wasn't born in the U.S. Um, mm -hmm. I was born abroad in Romania. We It's a long personal story, but we were refugees. We, My father's Arab. We went to Canada. We came to the U.S. when I was 16, you know, and then I started traveling a lot when I was about 19 on my own. And then, like I said, have spent the large part of my adult life, like, 50 to 70% of the year away, you know? So while I'm American, I'm not like, you know, born and raised here and just a, a bred through American, you know? So I, I tend to, I feel like I can be anywhere and call it home because we moved around so much growing up, you know, and I come from such a multicultural background. So I, you know, when I'm Congo, sort of my other home, that's where I do the most of my, my work. And well, spent half of my life living there, really. And I really do feel like I, I can really associate and identify with the Congolese. But yeah, when it was here, right outside of my, my doorstep, it did feel different. It felt extremely personal um, and very, very unsettling. So, so yeah, it was a, it was a, it was a long, a, quite a process to, to be on the inside and on the outside at the same time. Now, you did mention growing up, and one of the biggest parts of this podcast is being able to rewind a little bit and hear about incredible women's story from the very beginning. So I know that your early experiences of being a refugee really like laid the foundation for a lot of the work that you do today. So I was wondering if you could talk about some of the formative experiences that you had before you came to, to Canada and how they sort of laid the foundation for, for what you do now. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I was born in Romania in a rural village under communism. Uh, this is before communism uh, fell in 87, no, in 89, it fell. Sorry. So I was raised by my grandparents in this little village. And so I have vivid memories of what it was like to live under the communist regime, which was safe actually, but and people were afraid to speak very much. I recall my grandparents always kind of, you know, don't talk about that. Don't because the security services could listen and people would be taken in for questioning and disappear. But it was safe in terms of there was very low crime because punishment for criminals was so heavy that no one dared to do anything, basically. Yeah. And then there were, you know, food shortages and just general economic difficulties, which even though I was really young, but I, I remember it and I can compare it to my life now and, and see it you know, pretty big difference, you know, we were pretty self-sufficient because the grocery stores didn't have much food on the, in the aisles. You just wouldn't see things really. Um, they were all government owned and there was just food scarcity. So every family in a rural area had a large garden, some animals we traded sort of amongst ourselves and made food that would last throughout the year. So, you know, there was a, a lot of things like that. Um, 
And then we uh, ended up refugees a few times. My my father comes from Iraq and his, fa- his family was quite heavily persecuted under the Saddam regime. Uh, he mm-hmm. couldn't return there. The family there was eventually arrested, some were killed, and then they were thrown into Iran because my grandmother was of uh, Iranian origins and uh, Saddam's regime was did, never accepted them as full Iraqis, even though she had been born there and her family had been there a few generations. So he couldn't return back to Iran. And then he was facing um, a lot of sort of uh, just we were being followed, things were being confiscated, just harassment under the communist regime because he was a foreigner and they didn't like foreigners there, even though he was married to my mother. So eventually we ended up having to leave. We fled twice, actually. We tried Syria in uh, the early 80s. At the time, there was a war going on in the region, so there was a lot of military exercises in the background. So that was quite unsettling. So we decided not to stay there. Um, and then later on, we tried Germany. They wouldn't take us in. There was uh, at, politically, they shut out Eastern European uh, refugees at that point. Right. And then eventually, we ended up refugees in a camp, a UN camp for refugees in. Um, the former Yugoslavia, just outside of Belgrade in 1987. I was yeah. eight years old. So I had vivid memories of that camp um, and having a lot of friends that were mostly Afghani and Iranians. I don't know how we communicated, but we were very good friends. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, some of us. Um, so me and my best friend, Ida, was Iranian. I, again, I have no idea how we actually talked because we didn't speak the same language. Um, we both ended up in Canada because Canada took my family in and they took Ida's also. And eventually we were able to speak the same language. <laughs> so, yeah. um, and so that, that, and then we, um, and then it was just a, a matter of my parents rebuilding their lives again, kind of starting from scratch. Um, and then eventually we ended up in New York. So, so yeah, I, I think later on in life, I, I have a really twisted path that brought me to photography and journalism, and which involves, like, I went to school for economics, neuroscience, art history. I was all over the place. But yeah. eventually, I kind of found the cornerstone of it all. And yeah, it kind of brought me full circle to, um, to contexts um, where people are experiencing some sort of strife, kind of trying to find a better place in life. And there is always some sort of resemblance to my own family story and myself as a child. When I when I first knew you, you held management and research positions with organizations like the UN Development Program, Save the Children and Oxfam, and you were working on the ground in areas affected by conflict or natural disaster. And like you're saying, I think that was a, a full circle moment where you were able to identify with the stories of people that were going through a lot of the same things that you went through. But I want to know, how did you enter that world? How did you, like, what was the path to being part of those organizations? I went to university initially for art history, actually, and then actually left a few times to work and just see if I liked the actual work, I think, you know, so I I worked in art galleries. I decided at one point that wasn't for me. So I went back and I finished a degree in neuroscience and a second one in economics, more in economics development, and then ended up working for Parkinson's disease research labs and HIV vaccination development labs again. So it was scientific research. 
then decided that wasn't for me either. <laughs> and so I decided to use my other degree, which I had in economics, um, focusing more on economic development. So development, developing countries. And I, I went and I, um, I started working in Chiapas, Mexico. I found a small NGO there, a local one that took me on and basically offered me like, it was more like a, an internship, you know, where I, I got housing, a little stipend. And I, and I wrote about indigenous rights to food security, which involved like, economic development aspects too. Um, and then I, I thought I'm going to do the Peace Corps. So I applied to the Peace Corps. Somehow that didn't work out because of some administrative stuff. But somewhere along the way, I thought, okay, I'm going to, um, I'm actually going to try to get a graduate degree in uh, international development. Um, and so I, I, I went and did that. Um, and everyone said to me, you can't, I wanted to work in, in humanitarian aid and emergencies. Everyone said to me, well, you can't, you know, you, that's really hard because you need experience in a, in a disaster area or they won't hire you. And I'm like, well, how am I going to get that experience if they don't hire me? <laughs> right. So yeah. it was kind of, it was circular. So I, I um, started asking around. It's like, does anyone know anyone who works in this? And it just, I wasn't, you know, I had no friends who were in that area or anything, but just asking and asking, it just so happened a friend of a friend's roommate worked at the UN. Um, and so I, I talked to that person he was really helpful. He said, send me your resume. He completely helped me redo my resume because I didn't know how to, to do it in order to, to be an attractive candidate for these jobs. Right. Yeah. And then he said, you need to try to get an internship in this area. I said, okay, but how, because they won't hire me. You know, in any case, I, I hounded this poor person and, uh, <laughs> and he, he got me in touch with people at the UN in East Timor and in Sri Lanka. And I had started my graduate school program at that point and right away did a study abroad over the summer. They offered, you know, if you wanted to, you could do like a summer semester in Malaysia. That was one of the options. So I was doing that. So Singapore, uh, sorry, Sri Lanka and East Timor weren't so far from Malaysia. So after the, um, the program was done, I now was hounding these people at the UN and offered to Popeye and have an interview them. And they just sort of eventually got back to me and said, well, okay, you know, thinking that was very strange, but you know, so I did. So I took a flight to East Timor and I showed up and I you know, talked to these people at the UN and then I found all these other organizations there. So I just kind of walked in, which really surprised everybody because, and I don't know if I'd completely recommend it actually, because it was a bit dangerous, but it wasn't, um, it wasn't a, a conflict zone where bombs were dropping, you know, it was just like a bit of a precarious situation. Yeah. So, so I, um, so yeah, so I would, I, I had interviews with uh, various like care international and these big NGOs. And eventually they all offered me an internship for the following summer, because I think they were just like, wow, this woman, you know, she, or this girl really, really wants this. <laughs> Yeah. who's going to show up in East Timor? <laughs> like, like, like a minute you landed, they asked you, were you, uh, you know, the guy was standing in the tourist visa line and they're like, no, the UN line is there because there were no tourists. There was no such thing. You know, it was just, it was a mess of a little country. So um, it had just had a, an assassination attempt against the president. Um, like it, it was just, you know, it was, it was a mess. So, 
Um, so that worked out. So then I went back and did an internship, paid again. It had, it had like a, a stipend. It was for the summer with uh, UNDP. That's the United Nations Development Program. And then from there, I was able to get jobs. And so, yeah, that's how I, then I worked in um, the drought in um, uh, the Horn of Africa in 2011, which was actually a famine. It was like a regional famine. And then afterwards, it led me eventually to Congo, where I, yeah, I had uh, more positions with Oxfam and International Rescue Committee. These are big humanitarian aid nonprofits. Yeah, until until the moment when I decided to switch hats again and become a photographer. So it sounds like one of the big lessons from your story is, uh, well, Caitlin and I have this drag queen in New York City. Her name is Marty Gold Cummings. She can get any guest in the entire world on her show. And it is because she is such a bulldog. You know, she will ask and ask and ask until it happens. And we call it the rule of Marty Gold Cummings. Like, if you want something to happen, you have to be dogged about it. And you have to, um, if you want to make your own way in the world, you really have to not be afraid to wear people down. I feel, is that like one of your philosophies? Because I feel like it's a through line. Yeah, yeah, it is. But of course, do it with, um, you know, with some level of, of grace and consideration. You know, I mean, people are busy especially the people that are usually the gatekeepers that can help you along. Right. Yeah. So, so yeah, yeah. Be persistent and the naysayers try, try to ignore them as much as possible, really. Right. <laughs> unless, you know, unless they're offering advice and they're saying, no, this is not the way try this way. But they're, if they're just plain saying, no, it's not possible. Right. It's probably not the case. You know, now you, mentioned that next moment, that pivot you made, you switched from aid to photography. And I, where did you begin to feel that pull to move on to something else? Like, where do you think that came out of? Well, so I had always been interested in the arts. Um, you know, I, I first started studying art history in university and I had painted my entire life. Actually wanted to be a painter my entire life, um, or or a fashion designer, believe it or not. Um, so I left my undergraduate studies a few times to do that, um, to paint, to work in art galleries, you know. Um, and then I left all of that when I decided to go into humanitarian aid because there was just no way for me to be, you know, painting or dragging an easel or oil paints around in the middle of a. Yes. <laughs> A disaster right. or a conflict you know, in East Africa. So I, I had a camera. So sometimes I would take pictures, but the job was extremely demanding. Um, sometimes I slept four hours a night for like days on end, you know, and barely had weekends off. So there wasn't much time for me to be taking many pictures. Um, but I really enjoyed it. And then as I moved up the ladder in humanitarian aid, which actually happened pretty quick, um, and I ended up the the country director for food security programs for a large NGO, you know, so this was like pretty high up at this point. Um, as that kept happening, my job took me further and further away from the people, the actual people on the ground that we were helping um, or that we were working to better their lives. And the reason why I wanted to work in these places was because I wanted to be like, in touch with the local culture and, and interacting with it on a regular basis. And I, the more high up I got, the more my job involved looking at reports, liaising with donors in foreign countries, foreign governments, you know, that were 
that we're giving funds to our to our programs and just delegating a lot of the the field work to the teams because I've right. I won't, you know at one point I'd have like fifty to one hundred people under me right so it was yeah um, so I would still sometimes on the weekends if I had if I had an hour or two I would still lake it out to the nearest camp of um, uh, IDPs like internally displaced people refugees who haven't crossed borders that's the technical term you know that I just I yeah and so I, I started feeling like it just wasn't it wasn't for me. It was important, but it wasn't for me. Yeah. And yeah. And then the a large, um, sort of a significant portion of the Congo conflict, which has gone on for more than 25 years at this point, it really flared up and hit a, hit a bit of a peak at one point in 2012 uh, when this rebel group, the M23, took yeah. the key city in the eastern part of the country, Goma. Now it was very significant because it's like a, the, the city in the east of the country and it was completely taken and the military fled. So um, a lot of we were evacuated, all the humanitarians, into Rwanda, which is just across the border. It's like peg, Goma is like pegged against the border, basically, with Rwanda. And uh, all this press and photographers started coming in. And I didn't want to leave. I wanted to be in there where the photographers and the press was as we were being taken out. So I cornered these, here we go again. I cornered these (laughs) photographers. (laughs) I was like, hold on. I know you're busy, but what are you doing? Because I want to do what you do. How did you do this? And, uh, and so some of them were quite helpful and um, then went home back to New York because emergency aid contracts are very, the jobs are very short. They're, anywhere between one to six months, you know? So um, came back home to New York for a bit and I, I took a, a photography class at the International Center for Photography here in New York City. A very basic one, I didn't really learn anything. I just wanted to make sure I, I guess I needed some confirmation that I knew how to press the buttons on my camera, you know? Right. Um, <laughs> which turns out I did. So I was like, okay, good. I know how to take a picture. And then, I didn't, I wanted to go back and and try to be a photographer, but I was offered one more job by an uh, international NGO. So I went back to Congo for that in, uh, it was 2013 in April. And I only lasted about a month because really I just wanted to do photography. So then I left again, came back in October, 2013, um, as a self-professed, like self-proclaimed photographer. And nobody believed me again. And everybody laughed and all my old colleagues said, all right, uh, let me know when you want your job back, you know? Right. Um, <laughs> and then, and then it, it worked. I, I started kind of taking pictures of anything that was, that I found interesting. And I photographed something that was significant. It was, um, it was the most significant mass rape trial to date in the Congo. And unfortunately the Congo is, uh, one of the worst places in the world for, um, so this was quite a significant event. It's also a very overlooked crisis by the international media. So there wasn't, wasn't anybody there really doing this when I was. Media came in a little bit later on in the trial, but not at the beginning when the significant things happened. So this story uh, got published a lot. It got awarded. And then suddenly the editorial world knew that I existed and that I was a photographer. And I started getting assignments. And that's it. So it just went on from there. So here we are. It's now been eight years. 
what did it feel like for you when you had that moment of validation? Like, did you feel like, okay, we're on the right path. I'm doing the right thing. Or did you already know that? No, it, it was like that because every single time I've switched gears, I've kind of given myself some deadlines because, you know, I said, don't listen to the naysayers, but there's also, you know, we also, you also have to be like sensible to some extent. Yeah. It, it's great to dream and reach for the stars, but sometimes paths need to go in a different direction. So you got to be aware of when that has to happen. You know, obviously my yeah. path changed so many times. So, so like when I decided to be a photographer, I, I knew it was going to be hard to break in. So I said, okay, if I don't publish anything within a year, I have to, I have to reconsider this move. You know, right. if I, plus I was giving up my job. I had, a, I had a fine job with a lot of responsibility and a decent paycheck. Not that humanitarian aid workers ever made that much, but for what I was doing, you know, I was doing really well. So if I'm going to give all that up, that better work, you know, um, it better be for something. So, yeah. so yeah, I said, if I don't publish in a year, I'm going to reconsider. If I don't um, break even sort of within two years, I'm going to reconsider because at the beginning I had to put a lot of my savings into buying camera equipment, right? Um, right. Savings that I had from my previous job. And I just, I knew I kind of wouldn't be making any money. I'd be lucky if I was breaking even the first little while, you know? So, and then if I, you know, I told myself I'm not making a living off of this and after that, you know, soon after then I need to reconsider, you know? So I gave myself some, some deadlines and yeah. yeah. So when things worked out relatively quickly, yeah, it was great. Cause I was like, phew, okay, I can keep going. This is working. <laughs> so having seen international crises, both natural and political, I think there's a lot of people in the U.S. that when those come up, they don't exactly know how to help the people that are helping. What do you think is the best path for people to take if they want to be helpful to people like you? Uh, you mean me as a photographer or as a journalist? Yeah. I mean, like, what can we do to support journalists and photographers, like in, in your perspective or help them get the word out? Um. Well, be an audience, first of all. So um, unfortunately, according to what the publications are telling me and what their data is saying, um, a lot of Americans are not that interested in international stories as much as they are to national ones. So even just reading or clicking on that article and taking a few minutes to inform yourself on what's going on is helpful unto itself um, because that will allow us to do more work um, because if the if the newspapers know that you're interested in this kind of news, then they'll be assigning us to to tell more of these stories from abroad. So that's that's a big one. Uh, share it, you know. So because then they'll get help more, as in like share it on your social media and whatnot. Right. And then I would also say support independent journalists in their own projects because the media landscape has changed vastly over the last decade or two, I'd say. So our, um, the funds are shrinking and shrinking for photographers. And there's the staff positions have nearly disappeared for photographers in my case. Right. And for writers, it's getting less and less. And so we are, you know, we're not, it's a very precarious situation that we're in. Sometimes a lot of people have to leave this type of work because they simply can't make ends meet. You know, we, if you're a freelancer, suddenly no one's paying for your insurance or your 
you, you just have a lot of extra costs that you have to take on. If you were staff, those things would be covered for you, you know. And then also the 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 media is shrinking budgets. That means they're not assigning as many stories that are long or in depth. And that is a big pity because then you're only seeing such a fraction of something that's going on. I mean, if if a conflict breaks out in Congo, where I work a lot, and you're assigned and the, the newspaper can only afford to send you to photograph for three days, all you're going to see is possibly some pictures of like refugees in a camp, you know? But if they were able to send you for 10 days, you may be actually able to see what that conflict really looks like. You may get some information from where the conflict is actually happening. Who are the people that are fighting? What are they upset about? What are the issues? You know, what does this all look like? But it takes time to get to those places and to get to that kind of information. And there are photographers and journalists that have been sort of just doing this on, taking this on their own to do all this and then publishing it later. Um, so if you see, you know, if you see a photographer that's trying to raise funds for a personal project, as they call it like this, I would say try to support. Yeah. Otherwise, I think just stories just go untold. My last question for you, I know that you've made a lot of pivots and taken a lot of huge steps. And I want to know what's coming down the line for you. What's the next big thing that you want to do in your photography work? Well, along the lines of what I just said, I'm trying to do to focus more on longer and in-depth stories. For a few years, I was doing assignments as I was getting them, but then I took a little break and COVID kind of imposed that little break on me also right. from at least the international work that I was doing. Um, so coming back to it, yeah, I, I just am I'm very interested in focusing on longer in-depth stories, trying to tie up my Congo work in something conclusive uh, most likely a book, but I'm not sure the, the shape of the book because it may have a significant amount of writing also. Um, I've now done, and I've been in and out of Congo now for nine years. So I have a lot of photos, but I have a lot of stories also. So yeah. I'm trying to find a way to put that together. Yeah, and I'm, I constantly have my eyes kind of like peeled towards possibly moving on towards the Middle East or doing more things in the US. But yeah, I think the main thing I can say is that I'm really focusing on longer, more in-depth work, be it a combination of writing and photos to put together into a book or yeah. uh, spending you know, a good month or two in a certain region or on a topic in order to cover it more in-depth and finding the right outlets for that. Yeah. And if, if not, then putting it together into exhibitions or books or something of the sort. Well, that is amazing. And as a podcast, we're going to keep following you. Um, and we're going to share on our She's a Woman podcast Instagram some of your images and the things that you've worked on. So I just want to thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your story with us. Thank you so much for your interest and for listening and asking all these questions. Okay, Caitlin, that was our interview for today. And Boy, was there a lot in there. What a life she's had. Like, even from the moment she was born. You know what I mean? Right. Like, from start to currently, she has experienced more than you and I probably ever will. Yeah. And it's, it's wild. <laughs> and her determination and when she has a vision in her mind, she doesn't let anything stand in her way. And I think that's, like the most important lesson to get from her is to not be afraid to be like, no, this is what I want to do. 
I know there's a way to make it happen, but what's the way, you know? Yeah, I think she's a, a really great guest for us to have on. Certainly, I think probably the most college degrees we've had on one podcast, oh, I think. Oh, so. sure. And and you can just tell that she is so smart and so well-versed in so many things and not only in degrees, but just in life experience. Yep. She's really seen and experienced a lot. If she wrote a book... I would read that. I bet there's a lot of interesting stories in there. Oh, absolutely. Especially because she values telling the whole story so much. I think she sees a world where a lot of people skim over the stories that are available in the world. And she just like, what would happen if we looked in depth? Yeah, super interesting to hear um, sort of her ideas on how to help journalists because like how Americans don't care about things happening internationally as much. So in results... Uh, journalists and photographers get, you know, they lose their jobs. And I just thought that was super interesting. Yep. Absolutely. Pay attention to the news, I guess. Pay attention to the goddamn news. (laughs) But first, let's take a little break. Okay, we're back. Now, first of all, I want to say this again. If you liked your time with us today, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. We love reviews. In fact, we love them so much, we're going to read some of our favorite reviews right here at the end of the show. All you have to do is write in, and we will share your thoughts on this podcast. But enough about that. Caitlin, it's time for my favorite part of the podcast, the credits. This podcast was produced by Caitlin Gretham, and then I did it. The cast includes me and also Caitlin, and it is distributed by the amazing Studio 71. So thank you for joining us today. Make sure to tune in next Monday for another exciting episode. And remember, if you ever feel down, all you have to do is look in the mirror and say, she's a woman, and I'll be with you. You just got an annoying email. What's it about? The the neighbors definitely heard us. Oh, the neighbors. The neighbors definitely hear us screaming all the time, and uh, that's our gift to them. (laughs) 